Hello, everyone, and welcome to Friend Diagram. This is the podcast where two friends catch up and find common ground between their favorite media. I'm Remy. I'm Kat. And today we'll be comparing notes on two Mike Flanagan masterpieces, The Haunting of Hill House and Midnight Mass. Warning, spoilers ahead. Oh, I'm excited. Ooh, spooky season is here. We are all on the same page. And mm-hmm. if you don't like spooky season, come back in a month. Yeah, get ready because we're going to be in the holiday spirit. Big time. (laughs) And we're kicking off our spooky season coverage with a special episode, a head-to-head episode. So this will be the first episode of this nature that we're putting out, and it's still going to be in the classic friend diagram style where Kat will talk about her favorite piece and I'll talk about my favorite piece, but we will already have one overlap from the get-go, and that is that we're both covering series by Mike Flanagan today, and we've chosen our uh, respective favorites to go head-to-head. I don't think we're, like, competing, but, no. uh, <laughs> but they're just kind of resting their foreheads on each other very intimately. <laughs> <laughs> it's an intimate em- embrace, yes. not a move of aggression. Yes. We're Get just straight. appreciating both pieces of content and why each is our favorite for different reasons. And yeah, I'm really excited. I think this I am too. episode format's going to be really fun. Yeah, and we're both big Mike Flanny fans. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we love to refer to him, just <laughs> as Mike Flanny, because we just love him so much. He feels mm. like a friend. <laughs> Gosh, I'm so excited. Yeah, plus it's finally starting to feel like fall around here. I don't know what it's like for you out there, but as soon as it turns September, it uh, it got a little bit chilly here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been nicer at night. I've been just running a box fan mm-hmm. at night, but it's still hot during the day. It's been a lot rainier, though, which is nice. And I noticed some of the trees starting to change by work. Mm-hmm. They're starting to turn yellow. Which I love. Yep, it's almost fall. Mm-hmm. Love it. All right, I just want to jump right in. I'm so excited. I'm excited to get to the series. Yeah, I can't. I wish. Oh man, I'm excited. Yeah, let's just <laughs> jump into it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I'm gonna go first this week, and I will be talking about the haunting of Hill House, which came out in 2018, and it was my first exposure to Mike Flanagan. I hadn't seen any of his previous work. Namely, like, Oculus, I think, had come out and been quite popular prior to Hill House. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else? Dr. Sleep was before that. Oh, really? Well, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I still haven't gotten around to watching that. Oh, surprising. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. not surprising for you, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but Scott and I are planning to watch The Shining and do a double feature where we also watch Dr. Sleep. Which I'm very excited about. That's going to be our Halloween date night, I think, this year. That's a great idea. I love that. Yeah, it'll be fun. And I'm hoping that seeing The Shining with adult eyes will have help me appreciate it for the masterpiece that everyone insists it is. <laughs> um, so we are going to get into some heavy spoilers in this episode. So if you haven't seen either of these shows um, and you don't want them to be spoiled, 
you can come back to this once you've seen them. And hopefully this will encourage you to go watch them. But I think that we're going to get pretty deep into the details here. So Hill House is based on Shirley Jackson's novel of the same name. I have not read the source material for this. But in the television show, the general plot is that the Crane family moves into this uh, hill house in order to restore it over the course of like a couple months to a year, I think. And during their time in Hill House, we know that the children especially are experiencing some of the hauntings and might not know that they're hauntings and might not really understand what's going on, but we see them be affected by the spirits in the house in a lot of different ways. So Shirley like sleepwalks at night and like sleep talks. Theo senses cold spots throughout the house. Um, she can kind of touch different parts of the house and see other people's experiences in the house, which is a really interesting aspect to Theo's character. Luke has encounters with the tall man with the hat, who mm-hmm. is extremely spooky, but also the speedy basement ghost. I don't really know what's going on there, but he takes a dumb waiter down to the basement and sees like this crawling ghost that crawls pretty quickly. Oh, right. Very scary. I think that's the scariest part because I am scared of basements. I'm scared of being underground. (laughs) I hate it. I was always scared of like my basements growing up because mm-hmm. they were it was like unfinished and I love a basement. I love how basements smell. <laughs> oh no. I hate it. Um, oh, and finally, Nell, who is kind of the focus of the first couple of episodes, she constantly experiences this ghost that she calls the bent neck lady and right. that is very spooky. And then there is the final sibling, Stephen, who is the oldest of all of the children, and he doesn't have any ghost experiences in the house. So to list them off, the siblings are Stephen, Shirley, Theo, Luke, and Nell. So five siblings and the two parents make seven. Throughout the show, in the flashbacks to their childhood, we also see that their mother, Olivia Crane, is being affected by the spirits as well, but it's not as obvious when the show first starts out. She is definitely sensitive to different areas of the home, and she can kind of get visions of different places in the house. One really interesting foreshadowing that gets worked in is a precognitive vision that she has where she tells Hugh, her husband, to take down the ropes by the stairs because she just sees bodies swinging in the uh, spiral staircase. And later we find out that Nell returns to the house and gets hung on those ropes that Hugh never got the chance to take down. I think when most people think of hauntings and visions, you think that, oh, you're seeing things from the past because she definitely also is seeing past experiences in the house. Like a boy who has no use of his legs. She like mentions that, oh, there's a bookshelf and the the toys down there where he can reach them. So there's like this mixing 
of past and present, which is really interesting and something that comes up a lot in Hill House. But Olivia is is really interesting and she suffers from these kind of migraines that she calls color storms where she sees a lot of the things and visions and stuff like that. So those start affecting her more and more during the time in the house and she starts having more of them than she used to. And it's also putting a lot of tension on her relationship with her children. She's getting a lot more stressed and kind of sleepwalking into their rooms in the middle of the night to check on them. There's this really interesting scene towards the end where she has been sleepwalking and she grabs a screwdriver and is holding it over her husband's head while he sleeps and he wakes up and he's like, what is happening? (laughs) So eventually there is this night that everything kind of comes to a head. It's pure chaos in the home. And this happens in the first episode, but you don't get more details until later about what actually happens. But it causes the family to flee from the home. And a key detail is that they leave their mother behind. And somehow, some way, she ends up dead. And you don't get more details on that until the end of the show. But Hugh flees with his children. And... Then we kind of cut to about 30 years later and see all of the children living their adult lives. And um, it kind of starts off with Nell calling every member of her family and getting forwarded to voicemail or they miss her call. And the only person she's able to talk to is her father. And we find out that she's been seeing the bent neck lady again after many years of not seeing her. And she is definitely pretty freaked out. And eventually, in an effort to confront her fear, to confront the bent neck lady, she goes back to Hill House and ends up dying. And that's what we find out in that first episode. And so that tragedy kind of brings together the whole family for Nell's funeral, and they have to hash out all of their grievances with one another. And kind of resolve some unresolved trauma, unresolved family issues about their childhood. So the show's kind of set up as two timelines where you're seeing intercut with the adult lives of the Crane family, also the younger lives that are paralleling what people are going through in their adult lives. So I really like the execution of that Usually when timelines are flipping back and forth, I only want to be following one. And I'm like, come on, let's get through the kids in the house because I want to get back to the adults and see what's going on with them. But I think the way that it's written, it's like perfectly balanced where I don't feel antsy to get back to the other plot line. I'm able to just sit with what is being presented to me and enjoy that. Yeah, I thought they did an excellent job cutting back and forth between the two timelines. It's funny, hearing you describe that, it made me a little confused because in my memory of watching it, I've only watched it once and Mm -hmm. I think it was at least a year ago, but what I remember from like the opening of the series was 
seeing the eldest brother as an adult Mm -hmm. and him being like at a book signing or something. Mm -hmm. And we somehow get the contextual information that he's the only member of the family that's never seen a ghost. Mm -hmm. And then he sees Nell, Mm -hmm. uh, which he later finds out is impossible because it's the same night that she dies Mm -hmm. in Hill House. And I thought that was an excellent way to... It really grabbed my attention and Mm -hmm. made me very intrigued. And I thought it was very appealing because I love the idea of starting off with the most skeptical person. Yes. And them having to confront something they can't explain. And that being my inroad to uh, a story that gets more and more supernatural throughout Um, Yes. So that's how I remember it starting. Am I totally wrong? Yes, that's totally how it starts. Um, Okay. You don't see him at the book signing in the first episode, but you do see him. He he's an author and he published the story of Hill House and it kind of created this schism between him and his family where they all got mad because they know he doesn't believe anything. They know he doesn't believe in ghosts. They know he doesn't. He never saw a ghost and they felt that he just took the family's stories and made them sound crazy and exploited that for money. And so there's this big schism because of that. And surely, especially the next oldest right beneath him is Mm -hmm. the angriest at him and has the most unresolved feelings about the, the book, um, But in the first episode, you do see him spending the night at a woman's house where she claims to have seen a ghost and he is playing the role of the skeptic and trying to find a different explanation for her story. And he's such an interesting character because he's painted to be such like a self-interested and selfish person. And he definitely has his own self-interest at heart because... You you find out that he publishes this book despite his family not wanting him to. You also find out that he is having issues with his wife and that he has moved out. And uh, basically, you find out that he married her and didn't tell her that he got a vasectomy right out of college. And ah. she really, really wants kids. And, and it was destroying her because she was like, why can't I get pregnant? Why can't I get pregnant? And they were like, well, we'll do in vitro fertilization. He like let her waste all of this time going to appointments and shit. That's horrible. Yeah. And so I think in the show, we're kind of seeing Stephen mature a lot and kind of get out of this, like just this really weird spot in his life where he's able to kind of reform his connections with his family, fix things with his marriage. And that all kind of comes together as he kind of confronts the fact that the things that happened at Hill House were really happening and were really ghosts. And kind of realizing that because the reason he gets the vasectomy is he thinks that there's something wrong with his family, that there's something wrong in their genes. And he thinks his mom was crazy. Like he thinks everyone in his family is crazy and thinks they're seeing ghosts. And so um, he's just like driven by fear constantly. And uh, but fear of like the mental illness that he thinks his family has. 
I guess what you kind of see in the adult characters is that they're all being haunted by something, like some kind of choice that they've made or some kind of struggle that they're dealing with. Like Stephen is struggling with the choices that he's made by thinking about himself. Luke is a drug addict. He is constantly in and out of rehab. He steals from his family and you just kind of see the burden of addiction on a family really poignantly. I thought that that was perfectly displayed. I think that um, one thing that Mike Flanagan does in this specific series is that he writes flawed characters but never vilifies them. He writes them in a way where you have so much love for each and every character in the series and you want them to succeed and make the right choices and just reach their fullest potential. And I love that he does that because it would be so easy to vilify Shirley, who's just angry at her entire family and acts so irrationally, or Stephen for kind of exploiting his family, but he shows you the flawed nature of them, but also how great they are. Mm -hmm. And I, I really love that. Nell is struggling with her grief at losing her husband. Um, and that's kind of when she started seeing the bent neck lady again. So um, there's a lot of trauma there. Shirley is dealing with a mistake that she made that she's still holding on to. Um, she goes to a conference right after having her children and cheats with a man and she is in denial about it. She keeps getting visions of him like sitting at the bar and raising a drink to her. And Shirley is painted to be this like perfectionist and she wants the perfect life and she wants to appear perfect to everybody. And she is like unable to reconcile her image of herself with this like bad thing that she did. And eventually, as she like comes to terms with after the confrontation with Hill House, she tells her partner about the incident. And I really love the way that scene is written. And then like you get kind of like a flash forward where you see them together still and like, you know that they worked through that issue in their marriage. And I don't know, I just, I really like that arc. I like all of the arcs because all of the characters kind of get some resolution for what they're dealing with, which I really love. And then finally, Theo is dealing with her walls that she puts up around herself to protect herself. She's a very empathetic person. She like can't touch another person without sensing every single emotion that's going on in their body. She just like never lets herself get close to other people emotionally. And you kind of see how that impacts her. And as she grows and matures, she starts to let down those walls and those barriers. And then we see an older Hugh also coming to his family and trying to help them through these different areas of their life. I just love the way this family is portrayed. I love the way that they grow as a family, and I love the way that they grow individually. I think it was so well executed. Additionally, I was doing some reading about this, but Mike Flanagan also intentionally wrote the characters to describe different stages of grief in the family. So mm -hmm. um, do you want to guess them? 
Um, let me try to recall the stages of grief. So Shirley would be anger, mm-hmm. right? Um, Stephen, he's the oldest, right? Mm-hmm. He'd be denial. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the other stages? <laughs> One is bargaining, right? Mm-hmm. Who's bargaining? I think that one's tricky. What are the other stages? Depression and acceptance. Hmm. I don't know how to sort out the rest. Um, Theo is bargaining. Mm-hmm. Um, Luke is depression. And Nell is acceptance. Okay. Which I think makes sense for Nell. Because she is the first to like go and confront the house. Right. Yeah, and that makes sense because she, my recollection is that she seemed to be one of the more, like, paranormally sensitive children, I suppose. Like, I feel like Mm -hmm. they were somewhat on a sliding scale. Yeah. And she was, perhaps, had the most encounters, or, yeah, I don't know, I'm... It's hard to remember exactly. I think her and Luke definitely Mm -hmm. had a lot of encounters, Mm -hmm. and then... Like, they, I think they were the only two that were having encounters where they were, like, seeing ghosts. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting because they are the two youngest and... Are they twins? Mm Mm-hmm. They are twins. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I think that the way the grief is depicted is really interesting. Particularly the way Shirley deals with her grief is really interesting. Shirley owns a funeral home. And she is a mortician and basically she organizes the entire funeral. She puts everything together and does the reconstruction on Nell's body. And everyone's telling her, like, this is a lot. Like, I don't think you're processing. And I think that you shouldn't be doing this. And she hates that because obviously she's really angry about what happened. And she keeps saying that after their mother, they should know how suicide affects a family and that Nell was being really selfish and that she's like angry at Nell for Mm. um, knowing what this would do to a family and how it rips a family apart. And yeah, I think that Shirley's really not processing things very well. Theo is kind of drinking to deal with her emotions she's drinking and she keeps calling over this girl that she met in a bar to have sex and the girl from the bar really wants like personal connection and she's like very confused with how theo is interacting with her because theo's like Mm -hmm. okay we're done now and you can leave and the girl's like i don't know about that and then the girl, I wish I remembered her name. One second. Trish is the girl from the bar. And Trish uh, shows up at the funeral or the wake, the viewing for Nell. And Theo has like this explosion of just like, why are you here? I didn't tell you about this for a reason. I don't want you to be here. And just still like not letting herself like let down that wall of like this is a person that I'm seeing and um it's at that point that she kind of starts opening up to Trish a little bit more and letting down those walls and you see that continue over time Luke you expect to have kind of a strong reaction but he is very very quiet and 
that fits with the idea that he's dealing with like the depression part of grief. But then Luke also goes and buys a bunch of gasoline and goes and tries to burn down Hill House. So Mm -hmm. uh, that's a choice. Yeah. And then uh, Steven is kind of just being strong until he sees Nell's body. And then he absolutely just doesn't know how to cope with that. And he starts like making jokes and being real weird for a solid couple minutes. (laughs) I was like, oh, no. Um, And then Hugh just talks a lot. Uh, he, like, talks to his kids about, like, the choices they're making in life, and they all get, like, angry at him, and they're all like, please shut up. Mm-hmm. And I love that, um, because he's just, like, trying so hard to help his, his kids, and he feels like this is his one chance to kind of get back into their lives and kind of explain yeah. what happened, because they've all estranged They've been estranged, yeah. From mm-hmm. him, yeah. That's so sad. It's so hard to watch. Yeah, they kind of, like, blame him for their mom dying, and Mm -hmm. they don't understand why they left her, and stuff like that. And through the show, you find out that the mom was really um, dangerous at that point. The ghosts Mm -hmm. in the house had been manipulating her in a way that was going to make her kill uh, Nell and Luke to protect them. So... In, like, the concluding episode, you see her having a tea party with them, and he walks in just in time. But their friend that was having a sleepover had already drank the tea that had rat poison in it, and so she dies. Yeah. Which is just devastating. Um, Annabeth Gish plays Mrs. Dudley, who is one of the caretakers for the home. And the girl that dies is Mrs. Dudley's daughter. And Mm -hmm. it is, oh, just heart-wrenching. Annabeth Gish is a fantastic actress. She was in the later seasons of X-Files. And she did a fantastic job in that. Um, So I was really excited to see her in this. Yeah, one of the things that made me feel really engaged with Hill House as a series was the interesting structure that Mike Flanagan gives you through how it's the plot is unfolding Mm -hmm. because from the beginning you understand that the mother of the family died uh, some number of years ago and Mm -hmm. everyone was obviously very impacted by that and now we have a new death in the family because Nell died and in the same house but for almost the entire series, you don't know the circumstances around yes. either of those deaths. Mm-hmm. You you can see the fallout in both timelines, and you can see the lead-up in the old timeline, but you have no idea whether any of these different characters are justified in their actions Mm -hmm. because you don't know what actually was happening in either case. And so it's almost like watching um, a mystery or like a murder mystery where Mm -hmm. you know who was murdered, but you don't know how or why or what the real implications are. And I found that like very enticing. Like I wanted to understand what exactly, how did this happen? And I I really loved that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's like perfectly structured where you get just enough to make you like know just a little bit more, but you're not getting enough to really understand the full picture yet. 
And then everything comes together right. at the end. Yeah. And then once you get that full picture, it's so emotionally impactful. Yes. Even though you've known these things happened mm-hmm. the entire time, they had no real impact when yes. you find them out in the first episode because you don't know these people. You don't know this family yet. But as you watch them struggle and come together and fall apart throughout the entire series, once you get to the end and you understand the circumstances of how the mother died and how Nell died, it is incredibly emotionally impactful. I think that was excellently done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's also a theme of, like, self-sacrifice in the show that I really like and that I picked up on more during my second watch through but in thinking about the way that Hugh deals with the initial event he kind of doesn't cooperate with police in a way that makes him look guilty and that is why he loses the custody battle and the children all go to live with their aunt but he is protecting his kids from the understanding of what their mother was going to do that she was trying to like he was trying to protect them from having to reconcile this aspect of their mother that was really dangerous and scary and I think that that's really powerful and then at the end we come full circle where he makes a bargain with the ghosts in Hill House that want to take his entire family and he says I will stay but you have to let my kids go and I really love Hugh. Um, Oh, Hugh. (laughs) Um, But he does everything without hesitation as well. He doesn't have to think twice about that bargain, that decision that he's come to. And I really like that. Um, Theo is working a job where she is a, a therapist for children and... She basically shakes their hand at the beginning of the session and can get a read on them and figure out what's going on with them. And there are some cases where she is just putting herself through the trauma that a child has been through um, in order to help them. And I think that that's some really powerful self-sacrifice. And there's like a really awful and powerful scene um, yeah, where she just is able to get a young child out of a really horrible situation, um, because of her self-sacrifice. So I think that, um, is an example. Luke, um, when he is at a treatment center, he is 90 days clean and he risks all of that to go save his friend who has just run away from the treatment center and he can't get his spot back. He's not able to just go back to the treatment center. They give that bed to somebody else who's in need. And he risks all of that to go help his friend who ends up just stealing all of his money anyway and running off. So that's great. We love that. That was so hard to watch. Yeah. But yeah, so there's just that theme of self-sacrifice And I thought that the spookiness was good. I thought the Red Room was like a really cool twist because the Red Room is a room that everyone's obsessed with getting into and none Mm -hmm. of the characters realize that they've already been in it. I Um, love that twist. It is so good. It got me so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even the visual motifs that Mm -hmm. we 
were given as clues along the way. Yes. Namely the window mm-hmm. and how the red room internally was framed every yes. time a person was in it unknowingly. Mm-hmm. Mike Flanny, you got me <laughs> so good with that. I was, was so, so pleased yes. at that reveal. Holy shit, that was so well done. Oh, amazing. Yes. Yeah. Incredible. Um that was the best twist of the series, honestly. Yeah. And I love that it, like, I forget who said this, but someone says that, like, we'd all been in the Red Room. Maybe it was Steven, but they had all been in the Red Room, and the house was using that as, like, a digestion. Like, it was digesting them slowly by luring uh. them into the Red Room repeatedly. So, like, Luke thought it was his tree house, and... Like, Stephen would go up to the treehouse to visit Luke, and, like, they were all in the Red Room. Um, It was Olivia's reading room. It was Theo's dance studio. And so, like, they'd all been in there at some point. And wasn't it, like, Stephen's game room, right? Yes, and where he, I think also where he refurbished the mirror for his mother that she, like, punches a hole through. Because it, it, yeah, it literally laid a trap for them with yeah. whatever room would be most appealing. Yeah. And I love, I read about this online, that it, it's hinted at in the opening credits where the house is depicted as a maze and all of the different entrances to the Red Room are kind of laid out in the maze as like, oh, here's how you could get there. Here's how you could get there. Here's how Interesting. you could get there. I thought it was so cool. Yeah. There's also clues in the dialogue as well, because there are yes. times where people, where uh, Stephen will be like, oh, I did that in the game room. And mm-hmm. someone will be like, what's what the game, game room? room? Yeah. yeah. Where's that? Yeah. yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Or when, like, Hugh's trying to, like, very cleverly hint at it. He's like, think about it. I never built you a treehouse. We were only supposed to stay there for a couple of months. Why would I right. have built you a treehouse? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Ugh. I'll never get over the the window from the red room and how... God, I ch- it should have been so obvious. Every shot was framed the exact same way with that very particularly uh-huh. shaped window. And yeah. they disguised it so expertly. Yes. I love it. Such good trickery. Yeah, the ghosts were really cool too, but the house is so much more interesting than the ghosts, I think, because the house is in itself, I think, haunted. I'm making a bunch of banging around noises. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Um, But I think that the house in and of itself wants to just like collect all these people and the ghosts are just doing their thing. There's no like one big bad ghost like definitely poppy is a big bad ghost but she's the flapper girl style person that was like crazy and Uh, convinces olivia that she needs to kill her children in order to save them namely yeah she yeah what what is the relationship between the ghosts and the house like capital h house like what's up with that yeah are they doing the house's bidding are they working as a a hive mind for the house or do they just cohabitate in that space because they're all bad vibes i don't i don't know is there an answer it's hard to tell um i thought that the ghosts were really interesting because i i had to look this up i didn't know who the tall man was um Mm -hmm. but he is a man named william 
Hill, who was Poppy's husband. So they're like the two big bads. They're the Hills of Hill House that were, Uh. they met in an insane asylum, then went to the house and were cared for. Mm -hmm. Then I'm pretty sure Poppy drowned her son and did something to her daughter. Not clear. Mm -hmm. Um, Not great. Um, And then there was the old lady who was the lady that Annabeth Gish's character cared for. Um, Mm. We, like, see that a lot. And she looks the scariest, but she is the only one that is, like, trying to help. Because Mm -hmm. when Olivia is about to kill her kids, she says, like, no, Poppy's lying to you. Like, Poppy lies. Do not. Mm -hmm. Um, And it almost works. I found the tall man to be the most frightening ghost. Like... I don't yeah. normally feel frightened by portrayals of ghosts, I don't think, but the tall man, he really got me, and it's the way he moves. It's the way he moves. That gets me every time. If you move weird, yeah, that's frightening to me, and he glides slowly. I hate it so much. When Luke is, like, out looking for his friend, and he's got his back to... Luke and Luke is just looking at the tall man and the tall man keeps gliding closer but he's facing backwards and it's <sighs> so scary. Oh man. And also his only beef with Luke is that Luke took his hat. I and know. he got mad at Luke. God Poor Luke. Luke. That fucking hat. Luke has bigger problems. He than was your just hat. a kid that liked your hat. <laughs> and he was so cute. The a- the child actor that plays Luke is literally the cutest thing. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Um, so my last point that I want to touch on, I've been talking for a really long time, is Theo. Because I think that I've touched on all of the different, a lot of different aspects of Theo. But I have never seen a character in a TV show that I've related to more emotionally. Really? Yeah. I thought that she was just... Really great. I would say that I have a hard time with other people's emotional states. Um, I'm very, very sensitive to the people I'm around, especially people I know well. And so negative emotion that other people are feeling really impacts me strongly and I avoid it heavily. I just think that Obviously, I don't have, like, the same coping mechanisms as Theo, but it was just really satisfying to watch her grow and change over time and kind of let down the walls that she had built up to protect herself and learn how to better cope with the states of others. (laughs) And there's this, like, really great scene at the end of the show where she's packing up to leave the guest house that she lives in on Shirley's property. Mm -hmm. And then she is just taking one last look around the place and she takes off the gloves as like an afterthought that she always wears to protect herself from physical contact with other people. It's something that her mom taught her to do to protect herself from other people's emotions and and then she throws them in the trash. And I just thought that that was really powerful and just a really intentional letting down of those walls. Like, mm-hmm. I am intentionally going to stop putting this barrier between myself and the world to protect myself. And I'm going to find better ways to deal with that. And I right. just thought that it was really beautiful. It's A plus symbolism, Mike Flanny. So good. 
<laughs> it's definitely like aspirational, I think, for me to like I've talked with you about this. I can't watch media that I think is going to make me feel very strongly emotionally and I like avoid it that's why I go to comfort media so frequently examples of really awful things hyper stressful things the joker hated that felt that very strongly and heavily for days after watching it just Mm -hmm. felt awful felt that's that's exactly why I will not watch it I know I could see that coming from a mile away I was like no fucking way I can't watch this happen to this man not good um, also Parasite. I didn't feel it strongly for multiple days, <sighs> but just like the heightened emotional mm-hmm. intensity that like I found it not enjoyable at all. I can appreciate it as an artistic endeavor. I can appreciate mm-hmm. what they did there. I can appreciate the social commentary. <laughs> yeah. But oh my God, did I feel that? I felt sick. Like I felt nauseous. Mm-hmm. I was sweating buckets. <laughs> you and I went to that together, right? Yeah. <laughs> we were the same. I looked over at you at the Shall end wait. of the row. We went with a bunch of friends. And you looked like you had raked your hands through your hair just constantly. <laughs> and it was so like. so stressed. It was stuck up. And I was like, oh, great. Remy was feeling the same the oh same way God. as I was. So stressful. Yeah. But. I couldn't sleep. I was so stressed yeah. after that. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, well done. Well executed. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Oh, obviously. Could never watch it again. I was just like sick in my stomach. Um, mm-hmm. That's why I didn't go see Uncut Gems. I just knew that it Same. would make me feel super mm-hmm. intense things. And I think I just don't find them at all enjoyable. I think that you're able to find a little bit more enjoyment in like things that are mildly sad or intense and Things like that, like um, Mayor of Easttown left a pretty big impact on me. Yeah. um, Just because I was just like watching this person do crazy shit. She was doing, she was ruining her life. And I was like, this is so stressful (laughs) for me. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, I think I agree. I do. I mean, I have the same impulse to reject a lot of the same things, but I will say I enjoy a lot more emotionally intense things. And I think the key mediator in that relationship is how relatable I find them. Mm. So I found a lot of stuff about Mare very relatable. Mm -hmm. Um, I think uh, an excellent example of this is my just very strong love for Euphoria. Mm. which is a roller coaster of emotion. I've I don't think I've cried more during oh. any piece of media in years. Mm-hmm. But I love it and yeah. it's emotional because of how relatable I find different aspects yeah. of it to be. So it is well worth it to feel that connection to the piece mm-hmm. of media. But if we're talking about something like uncut gems, like I'm not a gems dealer. In the Diamond District, I don't have any of the same Mm -hmm. problems as Adam Sandler's character. Mm -hmm. I don't... Same thing for Parasite. I'm not secretly living in another person's home. So it's just like, it's stressful without the relatability. And for me, it's just, there's no, there's no relief there. It's just straight up stress. Yeah, and I think that aspirationally, 
I'd like to do a better job of like separating myself from other people's emotional states, even through media. Right. I just have, I've never, I mean, like I can relate to almost anything. I could relate to like a rock with googly eyes, but I have never seen my own (laughs) experience with other people's emotions so directly shown on screen. And Mm -hmm. that was just really boggling to me i thought it was so good and so well That's done the best. it's the best feeling and theo's fantastic mm-hmm. um just uh she's played by kate siegel kate siegel who mm-hmm. is also in um the haunting of blind manor she's in almost every mike flaney project i love it i love her i adore her i believe her. they're married actually i think oh that's my God, his wife yeah. i think so i love that but yeah, she's fantastic. Was she also the female lead in Midnight Mass? She was. Yeah. Yeah. She's so good. But yeah, I mean, I just really love that. And I love Theo. And I love her growth. And I hope we can all grow in the same way. Wonderful. Throw away your gloves, everybody. She did look great in those gloves, though. They were nice yeah. gloves. <laughs> I but love, I'm glad she got rid of them. <laughs> I love when somebody asks her about um, the gloves, and she says, oh, I'm just kind of a germaphobe. And I love that. I love thinking about other people's emotions as germs. Mm. <laughs> I kind of love that. Hmm. I mean, obviously, yeah. it's not supposed to be a direct, it's like an excuse. It's easier than saying, I just don't want to touch you. But mm-hmm. I think it's, like, so interesting to think about, like, emotions being contagious and certain people being more susceptible to emotions and wearing gloves because you're a germaphobe. I just thought it was an interesting one-off line. It's good writing, Mike. <laughs> so good. So good. But, yeah. It's a great haunted house story, and I adore a haunted house story it's like my favorite kind of horror content so it's also the kind of horror content i find the most scary um yeah and there's just so much to dig into but i've been talking for an hour now so i need to not do that (laughs) (laughs) all right well if you don't have any other thoughts on that for now then i can start talking about my favorite mike flanny property which is midnight mass Oh, baby. So while um, Hill House was his sort of debut series on Netflix, which has now become a mainstay of spooky season, it feels like Mm -hmm. this year I think will be the fourth year in a row where he has a series coming out in the fall of a horror nature. Midnight Mass was the series he it debuted last year in 2021. So it's the most recent one as of this recording. Um, uh, we're expecting a new one soon, but Midnight Mass was the most recent one as of right now. And it's seven episodes long. It's my favorite thing that I've ever seen he, him do, whether it's a series or a movie. And something that I think is very notable about it that I want to definitely acknowledge from the top is that this is an original story and an original screenplay that Mike Flanagan wrote. It's not an adaptation like um, the majority of his pieces have been, and it took him a really long time to get it made. 
it's something that he's worked on for a number of years and took a, a many different forms until I think he eventually got enough momentum going with the success of things like Hill House and Bly Manor um, to get this original story made. And it's just so good. I watched it when it came out in September of 2021 and loved it. I knew it was my favorite of his things right away. And then I rewatched it for our purposes over the past week or so. And it was like, I hadn't watched it again since my original viewing. Mm -hmm. And over the past couple of weeks while I was rewatching it, I was every episode I was just like thinking or saying out loud to myself, this is even better than I remember. <laughs> this is amazing. This is a masterpiece. <laughs> and I can't get over how good it is. It's mm -hmm. so good. And I was so pleased that it was even better the second time around. Oh my God, it's amazing. So that being said, Midnight Mass... Well, it's a seven-part series, and it all takes place on this small coastal island off, I think it's off the east coast of the United States, though that's not really made explicit. And this is an island, it's called Crockett Island, and it's completely detached from the mainland, and it has um, a small community living on the island that uh, most, mostly centers around fishing as their, the driving force of their economy. And we learn very early on that the population of the island has been drastically declining in the recent years because of the economic hardships that the people on the island have had to endure. So this is kind of a community in crisis. And... We're introduced to this island through the eyes of our protagonist, uh, whose name, his character name is Riley Flynn, and he's played by Zach Guilford. And he is a really interesting entry point to the series. Um, I have really similar feelings about it to what I pointed out about Stephen Crane mm -hmm. as the entry point for Hill House. I think Riley Flynn is the perfect entry point to the story of Midnight Mass. Mm -hmm. And I think there's several reasons for that. One of them is because he is sort of your quintessential skeptic character. Mm -hmm. He represents that viewpoint very steadily throughout. And um, there's many different viewpoints presented throughout the series, which is one of the things I love about it, but Riley Flynn is reliably your more skeptical sort of guy. Mm -hmm. But we are specifically introduced to him through probably the most flawed moment of his life, which is when he is the cause of a drunk driving fatality. Yeah. And you see him watching uh, a young woman die after he has hit her car with his car because he was drunk driving and you see him watch her die and he gets arrested and you're sort of like quickly taken through his arraignment and he pleads guilty and is incarcerated mm -hmm. and 
spends four years in prison because uh, of his actions. And then he, in this first episode, he's returning home to his family that lives on Crockett Island. And he has to deal with the fact that everyone in this small community knows what he did. And even more acutely, he has to deal with the fact that his family hasn't really gotten over the actions that he took and the pain that he caused people. So he has a lot to unpack with his relationship with the the setting around him, but he's such a fascinating protagonist because if he were framed in any other way, you could easily see him portrayed very villainously. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of something that you brought up already, Kat, in what you really appreciated about aspects of Hill House. And mm-hmm. I think it, that's also a through line um, through Midnight Mass as well, where people are treated as complex humans who mm-hmm. have certainly made mistakes, but they're not villainized for it. And you... There's only one true villain in Midnight Mass. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely. I feel we'll very get strongly. There. We will get there. No, you're completely 100% correct. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Okay. But yeah, that's a great overlap. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about it that way. But mm-hmm. yeah, you're so right. He just does such a good job portraying people as complex and flawed without being bad at their core. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. And I think one of the ways he wins you over to, you know, not disliking Riley at the very least, if not rooting for him, Mm -hmm. is you see him, first of all, pleading guilty Mm -hmm. and being like, I did this, this was completely my fault, I'm guilty, I should go to prison. Yeah. And accepts that whatever sentence he's given and doesn't, you know, he takes responsibility for what he did essentially and he also seeks treatment for um his alcohol abuse so he goes to alcoholics anonymous routinely so he doesn't love the alcoholics anonymous approach because a lot of it is kind of higher power Mm -hmm. based Mm -hmm. from what i understand and from what he says in dialogue and he actually kind of seeks his own like behavioral oriented route so he also tries to to deal with that um in ways outside of the the court mandated uh aa meetings Mm -hmm. so yes we watch him struggle to get reoriented with the town he's been away not just for the four years that he was in prison but for the time that he spent living in Chicago and working post-college because his greatest dream was to get off the island and not have to live there anymore because it's a small and, I think, suffocating mm-hmm. kind of community for um, people with a certain temperament, including him. And that's also the case for the character of Erin Green. She's the um, I guess main female protagonist, you could say. She's played by Kate Siegel, like we were talking about. And she too has recently returned to Crockett Island, which she also vowed never to return to. But 
because of circumstances in her life on the mainland. She also has taken refuge there and is expecting a child and dealing with her own issues in her family, namely um, processing the passing of her mother, who she had a very troubled relationship with. Mm. And so you see them taking solace in each other. They were friends as kids and all of that because everyone on the island knows each other. There's a very finite number of people there, but they have a lot in common. And I think that's a really interesting device for what the series does because they have these really common attributes in that they went away, they wanted to leave the island forever, and they both are back on the island because of choices they made in their life. But they have completely different philosophical approaches to how they want to live their life moving forward, Uh essentially, where Riley wants to sort of fix the way that he is with a, a rational approach, whereas Aaron Green has turn to more of a spiritual, religious route to uh, feel relief for the things that are troubling her. And they have many different conversations over the course of the series about what those approaches do for them, and I just thought that was a really interesting way to present the viewer with these completely opposite viewpoints, but Mm -hmm. from to present them within a very loving relationship so that we're not seeing them as these like clashing viewpoints that can never be reconciled. We're seeing them between two people that very clearly love each other. And yeah, that's just a really refreshing way to present those ideas. Like it's wonderful. Their chemistry, um, Riley Flynn and, uh, Aaron, Aaron Green. Um, they have such great chemistry. I they have like some really incredible tender moments throughout mm-hmm. without it being like sexual or in like uh, sexually intimate. Mm-hmm. Um it but it's very emotionally intimate. Yes, incredibly so. They mm-hmm. are having like these very tender heart to hearts that it, it just oh, I love that. I love that the writing there. And I also like that these two foils, these two character foils, present both of their sides as valid ways to go forward in life. It's not trying to say, it is saying, the show is saying things about religion, it's saying things about blind faith, but it it isn't saying that religion is bad or invalid or an invalid way to deal with grief and trauma. And putting your faith in a higher power is not a bad thing. And I really like that because it's very, I think it's hard to write both sides of that story. And I think that once again, Mike Flanagan has struck a balance there that allows him to say what he's trying to say thematically without vilifying the good nature of either side. Does that make sense? Yes. I think you're definitely correct. And I would even go farther in saying that I totally agree. He He's not presenting this as like a black and white thing where one side is clearly correct. Mm-hmm. He's also showing you many layers of 
gray gradient yes. in between. Like there's many people that represent intermediate positions on a spectrum of atheism and religion. Yes. And it works because you're seeing these all these different people throughout that spectrum carrying out actions and making decisions based on where they fall on that spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so it gives you this like panoramic view of how different people with different philosophies can tackle the same problem. And you can make the judgment on what philosophy is the correct way to execute um, these actions and what really at the core makes someone a good person mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what's motivating them. I think, yeah, I mean, the entire show in terms of really big themes, it's themes of grief and guilt and responsibility mm-hmm. and basically what it means to be a good person and do the right thing and whether or not religion should um has a place in that conversation or to what degree or in what way that's kind of the question you have to answer for yourself as you're watching all of these different things play out on the island yes and god it is just so well done so i guess i should explain the plot a little bit more so that this all makes sense but basically yeah you have these people living on the island they all know each other they've been there forever and there is um a subpopulation on the island of people that attend the catholic church there i believe it's the only church on the island uh but not everyone goes there mm-hmm. some people do and it just feels like everyone goes there <laughs> well eventually that is kind of how oh it, yeah you're it, right you're right it turns out but at first we see this is a you know a pretty small devout mm-hmm congregation for this church until this priest comes to the island whose his character's name is father paul hill and he is played by hamish linklater (laughs) who just oh my god what a performance he gives i'm blown away Mm -hmm. by hamish linklater's performance he absolutely crushes it he's electric he's dynamic he (laughs) is amazing to watch i can't take my eyes off of him he's Mm -hmm. incredible in this like i'm such a huge fan of his now which is an an incredible recovery because prior (laughs) to this i despised him because of (laughs) the the actions of his character on the newsroom so that to come was back so small <laughs> to come back from that and completely win me yeah. over by portraying this immensely complex character mm-hmm. father paul hill is my favorite character in the whole series he has so much going on mm-hmm. and i felt so uncertain about how to think about him because his motivations are really opaque for almost, like, for most of the series. But he, I, you can't stop watching him. Like, yeah. I just want to know what he's doing and why. And he comes to the island and is there to replace their Monsignor, mm-hmm. which I guess is some other sort of rank of religious leader. 
while he's away sick and the way he uh, just kind of takes over leading the church more and more people become interested in coming back to church and joining the congregation and he just really uh, revitalizes the religious community on the island to the point that it becomes like overwhelmingly popular and people are clamoring to be to be part of this congregation now because of what father paul has done there and there's you know a small number of of skeptics that are suspicious of that and as a viewer i was really suspicious because i'm not a religious person so i wasn't inclined to you know think oh this is definitely going to be a good thing <laughs> um but yeah wow so that all happens and over the course of the series you basically understand that father paul is in fact a younger revitalized version of Monsignor Pruitt, who was the very elderly priest that had been living on the island for a very long time. And he had a encounter with this being in the desert on a religious mission that he was on. I forget the word. I think it's like a pilgrimage. Yes, that's the word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was on a religious pilgrimage and encountered this supernatural entity who he thinks is an angel, but we come to understand is more of like a vampire sort of Mm -hmm. species. And he interacts with it. It drinks his blood he brings it back. Well, he becomes young again, I yeah. guess. Um, he becomes his like most ideal self and returns to the island and is like, I need to share this gift. This angel helped me. He can help this island. This island, you know, has been on hard times for many years. And this is a gift that I want to share with my congregation. And so he brings back the vampire guy. In slash secret. angel <laughs> in secret he smuggles it back in a big crate <laughs> i don't know what customs Subtle. was doing that day <laughs> what the fucking customs was like i don't know it's a big box <laughs> he smuggles it back um and begins um secretly giving the congregation blood from the vampire to consume during communion mm-hmm. And that kind of begins this, uh, it's kind of hard to explain. It made more sense the second time around, I will say, but they basically become infected with sort of a virus uh, in a way Mm -hmm. that the vampire blood represents. And people begin de-aging and ailments that people have experienced large and small are cured. Um, there's this one really big scene where a young woman who has been paralyzed, you know, from the waist down from a, a shooting incident, she is able to walk again and people are like, oh my God, it's a miracle. Mm-hmm. And that's what like really kicks off people wanting to go yeah. to this church. <laughs> um, but it's all because of the blood that people are unknowingly consuming. I remember I didn't pick up on the de-aging initially, mm-hmm. and 
there's a character that has um, an aging mother who is like bedridden and the priest starts coming, Father Paul starts coming and giving her communion personally. Mm -hmm. And she starts aging in reverse, but I didn't pick up on that at first. And halfway through the series, I was like, God, they did a horrible job casting (laughs) this actress. She's way too young. The makeup (laughs) is bad. It's just so bad. And then she literally ages to be like 20. And I was like, ah, dang it. I get it now. Yeah. I was so slow on the uptake for that one. (laughs) But there's like other stuff where people don't need eyeglasses anymore or um, back pain goes away. Things like that. And And it's really slow because they're just taking a sip of wine at communion and stuff Exactly. Yeah. Right. So that's happening with all the church people. But then there's also, um, like I said, there's many viewpoints represented. And uh, basically all of my favorite characters are like the non-church people. So, for example, you have Dr. Sarah Gunning, played by Annabeth Gish. Um, she's the doctor for the entire island, and her mother is yes. the the woman that's suffering from dementia and begins to um, age backwards after she's brought communion every day from, by Father Paul. And it's so interesting because she has dementia, which I forgot mm-hmm. until you just brought it up, but she's the first person to recognize Father Paul. She mm-hmm. calls him Monsignor Pruitt. Yeah, um, because she calls he him looks, by his real name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that was such a good... And you just think that she has dementia. Right. No one gives it a second thought, but she's the only person old enough to recognize yeah. his young version of himself. She's, yeah. Yeah, she's the only person that's right. Oh my god. I fucking love it. So yeah, Sarah Gunning, Dr. Gunning, excellent. Love her. She does a great job. Yes. Another favorite character is Sheriff Hassan. Um, mm-hmm. He's played by Rahul Kohli, and who is in Bly Manor. Oh he's the gosh, chef. Yes. Uh, the chef is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, is he good I as a sheriff. Him. Oh, God, he's great. I love him in both roles. I'm so attracted to him. He's I think really he's hot as the sheriff. Incredibly yeah. attractive. Agree. Oh, and his character, Sheriff Hassan, is a fascinating character Mm -hmm. very interesting to watch because he makes many many decisions i think nearly all decisions that i agree with i he's got really good motivations Mm -hmm. and is a really like i'm on his side in every scene that he's in yes and but he's also a man of faith he has very strong faith Which is why it's in that gray area where I think he's a good person, really, and he's doing the right thing, Mm -hmm. but he is also a very faithful person, which is part of that that spectrum that I was talking about. Um, The the problem for his character is that he's not a Christian. Um, He um, is a Muslim and... That makes him a complete outsider on this island, and many people are really awful to him about it, including my least favorite character Mm -hmm. of all time, yours and mine. Welcome to the show, Bev Keen. (laughs) This is is now a Bev Keen hate podcast, and... Wow. Have you 
ever hated a villain so much. She literally makes me sick. Like, I feel sick when I think about the things that she does and the self-righteousness with which she does them. Mm -hmm. There's not a guilty bone in that woman's body. Mm -mm. God, I hate her. She's She's so well-written. She's so true to life, which is what makes me the most upset. Yeah. Everyone knows at least one Bev Keen, and they are worse off <laughs> for it. Uh, she sucks bad. Fuck yeah. Bev Keen. I fucking hate her. She's very self-righteous. She's a religious zealot, and she's a manipulator, and she's just a piece of shit to basically she's everyone. She's an animal killer. She she's kills horrible. Joe Colley's dog. Joe Colley, he's another non-religious person who mm-hmm. is again fascinatingly complex uh-huh. he does a terrible thing where he is responsible for paralyzing lisa the uh-huh. the girl who's unable to walk at the beginning and he also struggles with alcohol and he's kind of the town pariah and the uh-huh. only person that's nice to him is sheriff hassan basically and and our main character and our main character uh, because they share that that same struggle and Bev Keen kills his dog <laughs> uh, just out of spite he literally yeah hasn't done anything for years she just decides to kill his fucking dog yeah because she thinks fuck? he's like not. Yeah, I mean, she's so fucked up. She thinks some people are the chosen people and other people are not, and Joe Colley is decidedly not chosen to her. I literally hate her so much. She's, God, what a villain. What a compelling villain. She's the worst of all time. I fucking hate her. Every time I watch it, I'm, like, shouting at my screen, like, fuck you, Bev Keen. It's insane. Yeah. She's so thoroughly awful. Mm-hmm. They did... A great job writing her. Yes. One thing that I did want to like touch on is that I really love the sheriff's relationship with his son mm-hmm. and his son growing up because I thought that was really interesting because yeah. his son starts kind of um, wanting to see what Christianity is about and like all of his mm-hmm. friends go to church and they have this like interesting conversation about like like why do you want to check out Christianity? Do you want to check out Christianity because that's what all your friends are doing? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, like, what is the right reason to turn to God? And, like, what is the right reason? Yeah. no. I just thought it was, like, such an interesting plot line. And I think the way he deals with it is so – shows the struggles of being a parent really well, I think, and Mm -hmm. disagreeing with your child in a – pleasant kind of parenting way you know like right oh yeah he approaches it very thoughtfully and i'm glad you brought that up his son ali is a prime example of one of my absolute favorite things about this show Mm -hmm. which is also an overlap with what you like about hill house in that i think every single character in midnight mass has a perfectly written end point and their arcs are fucking great, mm-hmm. but specifically their endpoints are fucking flawless. In yeah. the in the most of the endpoints are in the finale, mm-hmm. but 
Ali, he is a great example because from the first episode, we see that he's very eager to fit in with his peers. He's Uh like a teenage boy, like high school age boy, and he's an outsider because of his race and because his dad is the only police force on the island. So he has a hard time, you know, Uh being accepted for both of those reasons. And you can identify from very early on that social acceptance is his key motivator Mm -hmm. and that seems to be the driving force behind why he becomes interested in attending the catholic church even though his family's muslim and that's what spawns all of those thoughtful discussions with his dad the sheriff and it's it's very painful to watch what ollie's choices how they affect Sheriff Hassan Uh throughout the series. Like, it's so sad watching Uh his father do the absolute best that he can, and every time Ollie chooses to do the more popular thing or the more people-pleasing thing. Uh And it's so frustrating and heartbreaking to watch until you get to the final episode like ollie has a fucking terrible moment in the penultimate episode where he chooses to basically become a a vampire and be like one of the first people to choose the side of the the crazy religious people essentially Mm -hmm. which is just a fucking slap in the face to his dad to not just like make that choice but do it in front of him when he's like begging him not to Mm -hmm. It's heartbreaking. But then in the finale, after all the shit goes down, he's the one that kind of delivers the final nail in the coffin for all of the terrible, shitty people. Uh And his dad is so proud. And they sadly both perish, like nearly everyone in the entire series. Yeah. But they do so on their own terms. They, um, at the end, they're praying together. And you can tell that Ali has come full circle, and it's beautiful. Are they on the beach? They are. Uh, that's what I'm picturing, yeah. Yeah. Ugh, I fucking love it. The moment he throws the lighter, when Ali yeah. throws the lighter into the rec center. Yeah. Oh, what a what a moment. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so good. But yeah, that's like a perfect example of how through the, that entire arc is brilliantly executed and it's not just that character it's all of them yeah and it's interesting like i just said almost everyone dies there are a total of two survivors out of the entire island yeah that survived the series which for me that's pretty amazing because you know i'm a stakes person and those are some fucking stakes (laughs) (laughs) oh it's hard to watch I yeah. will not deny it because I, yeah. I've come to love so many of these characters, and they've shown insane growth and very satisfying arcs. But in many ways, those arcs and those endpoints would not be complete, or they would not be as impactful if they yeah. don't die. And that is because another overlap is that many of those deaths are self-sacrifice. Yes. So, for example, Erin oh. Green, she is attacked by the winged vampire uh-huh. guy and, a, like, clearly carries out 
uh, a plan where she is submissive while her throat is being torn out, but she mm-hmm. does it so that she can cut holes in the wings yes, of so the vampire so away. that he can't fly to the mainland yes. and infect everyone. Incredible. And yeah, like she is part of like this absolute awesome team at the end, like Aaron Green, Dr. Gunning, Sheriff Hassan, they all go out and burn the boats Mm -hmm. that are, like, left operable so that the infected vampire religious people can't carry out their plan to infect the mainland. They basically go into containment mode where Mm -hmm. they all sacrifice themselves in different ways to prevent this contagion from escaping the island. And... God, what a team. It's crushing to watch them perish, but it is brilliant to watch them succeed as a whole. Because in the end, they do prevent the infected people and the vampire guy from escaping the island and infecting everyone on the mainland. They, like, lose control because they have this, like, need to kill and feed. And there's Mm -hmm. this scene... I can't remember it exactly, but where a man walks out and he's like, I just killed my wife. I just killed my wife. Like, help. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, he also is just, like, still hungry and wants to kill. And it's, like, so heartbreaking Mm -hmm. because they have no control. They have no, like, these people just have no control over what they're doing anymore. I think it's interesting you bring that up because that is related to... I think one of the most important conversations in the series, there's many, I mean, it's so hard to unpack all of the different ideas that are at play. I would need 10 episodes to do that, even just covering (laughs) what the monologues are addressing. There's many monologues, but Uh. there's a specific conversation in the finale where everyone has drunk the Kool-Aid and become vampires in terms of, like, the really religious people, and become vampires, and they have this bloodlust, and they go on a rampage Mm -hmm. throughout the rest of the island, and they seek out, you know, people that weren't at the church so that they can attack them and drink their blood and everything. Mm -hmm. But I think the most important conversation in that general time frame is the conversation between Ed Flynn and Annie Flynn, who are Mm -hmm. Riley's parents. And they kind of realized too late what was happening. They were both very religious throughout. Mm -hmm. Um, They wanted Riley to be religious. They Mm -hmm. were church people through and through. But when they saw what was happening with, you know, the vampirism and the like literally killing people in front of them they mm-hmm. were like this is insane and they you know did their best to resist but due to circumstances they were either like physically overpowered or sacrificed themselves to mm-hmm. help other people get away yeah and so they w- were turned in- into vampires but when they were vampires they abstained from rampaging and they mm-hmm. didn't drink anyone's blood and they have this conversation where They're like, well, yes, I feel this drive. I feel this urge Mm -hmm. and this hunger, but I can choose not to. I can choose not to do that. They see these people doing these horrible things Mm -hmm. around them, and they're like, I 
I don't have to do that though. And that I think is one of the core arguments of the series in that sometimes people use religion as like a smokescreen for doing terrible things because they're doing it in the name of religion Mm -hmm. and therefore it is right automatically but that is often not the case and you can still be religious and do good things but you don't it's like it's so it's so hard to unpack basically it's like People can use religion to be very horrible to other people, mm-hmm. but you don't have to be that way. You can choose to express religion as love for other people and not yeah. as a, a means to alienate them or attack them or things of that nature. And that's where I think it was really important that they showed that conversation between the Flynn's uh, in that same vein, there are some really interesting things said by Father Paul at the end of the series. Yeah. Um, because there's a moment where the chaos kind of starts and he realizes, like, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. I've made a horrible mistake. Like, this is, I was, he, until that point, had literally thought, I am helping people. I am creating mm-hmm. miracles. This is an angel. And then there's this moment where he has to reconcile what is actually happening with what Mm -hmm. he thought he was doing. And it is so satisfying, even though there's like so much tragedy happening. It's so satisfying to see the sanity that he still has and the fact that he can accept that he did something wrong and was, I mean, he was also being like, manipulated and egged on constantly by Bev who just wants power and fucking Mm -hmm. is the worst and literally this is a story of how Bev Keen kills a whole town yeah that's like twice Mm -hmm. fuck Bev Keen yeah no you're completely right that's something I did want to address in that like one of the benefits of watching it a second time Mm -hmm. is having a, a firmer grasp on father paul hill's character because like i said i was so uncertain about whether i was meant to like him or not Mm -hmm. because he has a lot of screen time like at first you think when you begin the series that it's going to be riley flynn versus father paul and that's like the Mm -hmm. main matchup but that's actually not the case like riley sacrifices himself in episode five, mm-hmm. um, because it's the only rational thing to do in the circumstances within which he finds himself. Mm-hmm. And Father Paul, you very correctly identified, had good intentions throughout. He through. thought he was doing the right thing. He was just simply incorrect. Mm-hmm. And his only real mistake was trusting Bev Keen. That piece of shit made everything worse she did manipulate him into you know becoming more extreme and wanting to do these this like whole big grand plan Mm -hmm. and i felt so bad for father paul by the end because you're totally right he completely realized his mistake he realized he did the complete opposite of what he wanted to do and brought horrible things to the island and yeah. I mean 
I can't go through like the plot line of everyone on the, in the whole show, but his storyline is particularly tragic mm-hmm. in many ways, namely because all of the events of Midnight Mass could have been avoided if he had simply been allowed to love who he loved mm-hmm. during his lifetime, which was Dr. Gunning's mother. Mm-hmm. Um, we find out at the end Dr. Gunning is secretly Father Paul's daughter, who he conceived with, um, you know, Sarah's mm-hmm. mother, I, I, uh, Mildred, Mildred Gunning. And they share this, you know, very loving connection. And that's like one of the reasons why she recognizes him because it's the father of yeah. her daughter. And in his prime. In his prime. Yeah. When they were having an affair. I believe, yeah. because Mildred's husband was away at war. Mm-hmm. And when he came back, you know, it was socially unacceptable and I think, you know, not church-sanctioned to father yeah. a child. And so they weren't allowed to be together. Yeah. But he fucking goes and brings back this vampire to cure her. Like, it was mostly mm-hmm. for her. That was his initial motivation, was to try to help restore her health because she was suffering from dementia and then all of these things just snowballed until everyone ends up dying essentially because the church was like you can't love her (laughs) and in the end he unfortunately witnesses sarah being killed and they have oh god like a horribly sad exchange as she's dying and then he and mildred carry her out to this special place to die while they're also waiting to die because they've both been turned into vampires. And he, God, he he fully realizes the terrible mistakes that have happened and he throws his collar away. Mm-hmm. And at the very end, I think his final line is like, can you forgive me? Because he just feels such remorse for what's happened and she doesn't answer verbally but she kisses him right before they die and i think that the answer i don't know what her answer is but i think if i had to interpret it it would be like uh maybe yes but i love you anyway because i understand what your motivations were and that they were good from the start and yeah. Fuck, man. Bev Keen also has the perfect end point where she dies pathetically. Yeah. She's such a piece of shit. <laughs> she, yeah. like, believes until the very end. There's no moment where she gets to, like, reconcile. And it's so satisfying, though. Yeah. Like, that she doesn't get this moment of, like, redemption or forgiveness or anything. Because no. she's just such a bitch. She's a piece of shit to the end. <laughs> I feel so strongly. I feel very strongly, too. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I wish I could better articulate how much I admire what Mike Flanagan has done with Midnight Mass. Mm -hmm. Because the fucking writing, the directing, all of it is just Mm -hmm. so good. But there's so much nuance and detail that I cannot explain all of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I I just love it. It's a masterclass in presenting many nuanced takes on on a topic. Um, yeah, yeah. I think those were all of like the key highlights 
that I wanted to touch on. There was one other moment that I like rewind and watch, and that is, I think it's in the very first AA meeting that they have on the island between Jess Riley and Father Paul, and Father Paul wants Riley to be honest about, you know, what he thinks about higher power and religion, mm-hmm. and I just love the dialogue between them, and I love Riley's diatribe against, mm-hmm. you know, the insidious nature of the church in many ways, and yeah. I just love that moment. I love all of their meetings, to be honest. I mm-hmm. think that's a, a point where Hamish Linklater's performance is particularly strong yes. amid a powerhouse performance. Like, I want to watch him in everything now. I yeah. loved him. I recommend watching it at least twice because you uh-huh. really do understand much more about what's happening the second time around. Yeah. Oh, man. It's so good. I love it. Another thing that I feel very strongly about is the manipulation of children. And that's one thing that really gets me about Bev Keen's character mm-hmm. is that she's like influencing young people and Mm -hmm. like telling them what to think and yeah there's like a town meeting where i think they call the meeting because sheriff hassan finds out bev keen is giving out bibles and reading bible passages in school Mm -hmm. in public school Mm -hmm. and the the whole meeting that she basically railroads everyone in like steamrolls everyone Mm -hmm. i mean it's so infuriating. It's so hard to watch. Oh my god, it's horrendous. But, um, yeah. And another prime example of what you're talking about, I found watching Lisa, Mm -hmm. watching her interact with her two parents, Mm um, who are also very religious they like get on the like vampire train very early isn't her Um, father the mayor he's yeah he's like the yeah he's the mayor gotcha her mom dolly is also really involved in the church and the fucking ways they manipulate lisa are just disgusting and hard to watch and yeah i guess i should say she's one of the two people that gets away her Mm -hmm. and warren flynn just an adorable little character. Mm-hmm. He's so... He's great. I was so happy for Warren when he got away. Yeah. I love those two together. I'm glad they survived. Mm-hmm. Um, that, too. That's an excellent choice. I'm glad if anyone survived, it was those two. So, yeah. oh, man. There's just so much. Yeah. Everything works. It's a masterpiece. It's... I've decided... Upon a second viewing, it's a fucking masterpiece. I love it. I like the cool interpretation of a vampire storyline. Like confusing a vampire for an angel. Like it's just not not a classic way to do it. But he still had all of the classic vampire tropes in there. Like I Mm -hmm. loved that. The sunlight thing. Mm -hmm. The um, There's this really cool scene where... Um, Annabeth Gish's character, Dr. Sarah Gunning, takes blood samples and they're sitting on a table and the sun shines in like from behind a cloud and they just boil. And yeah. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. Um, 
And the vampire is scary as fuck. The vampire is so scary. Oh, the eyes, the reflective eyes. Yes, were like I love such that a good detail. touch. Oh. Um, yeah. Oh my so god. Good. You're good right. Monster. It's it's a great take on vampire. It's such an interesting take. Mm-hmm. It's just fucking genius. Yeah. Also, I want to say like from the very first time I watched the first episode, I deeply wanted to live on this island. <laughs> zealous no just in like just uh, by yourself just the milieu of that the island where i get my own house and i'm on the sea yeah it reminded me a bit of jaws yeah big time yeah i definitely want to live on crockett island it gave me like big time stephen king vibes Mm -hmm. all over the place like if i were to summarize this just through the lens of stephen king i would say the story is Needful Things meets mm. Salem's Lot with a teeny tiny bit of the regulators mixed in as part of the origin story for ah. the for the monster. And uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful soup. <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful Stephen King soup. Mm-hmm. Good soup. <laughs> Fucking good soup, Mike Flanagan. Thank you for what you do. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh what a good pairing oh, man. i just love both of those so much mm-hmm. yeah um, so do you want to do a rundown of the um similarities the overlap i already talked about most of mine but i can list them off for you um so one of the big overlaps that i didn't explicitly state i don't think is mm-hmm. uh discussions of addiction so mm-hmm. for midnight mass it's um, Riley Flynn and Joe Colley and their relationships with their addiction to alcohol. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a lot of discussion around Luke. Um, and he has uh, narcotics problems, yeah. right? In Hill House. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that is a, a big overlap. And it ties into the other overlap we addressed in that flawed characters are mm-hmm. portrayed with depth and mm-hmm. uh respect and they're yes. given the the well-rounded perspective that they deserve yeah. another set of overlaps uh that both series has had were the very very well done character arcs especially regarding the endpoints for characters mm-hmm. and how in many cases those endpoints tied in a theme of self-sacrifice. I can't wait to see more of Mike Flanagan's. I know stuff. he's so fantastic. And what's the the next one coming out? Mm. Um, the next again? one coming out is called The Midnight Club, and it comes out. So this re- episode will be released on nine thirty. Ooh. And The Midnight Club will be released. On October 7th, 2022. So this episode will come out a week before Midnight Club. So you should keep that on your calendars and go watch that on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when that premieres. And then uh, there's also an adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher in the works. And we don't have a release date for that. But keep your eye out for that because that is going to be really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's remarkable how 
skillful Mike Flanagan is both at adaptation and original yes. storytelling. Wow. How does he do it? He's so good at both. Yeah. What a mind. What a treat. I'm so glad you're here, Mike Flanagan. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that to me, and I was like, oh. <laughs> I'm glad That's you're so here nice. too, Kat. <laughs> I'm glad we're all here on this planet right now. <laughs> With Mike Flanagan. With Mike Flanagan. Thanks for joining us this week on Friend Diagram. Thank you to Tyler Seek for the creation of our intro and outro music. Did you take any of our recommendations? Have any thoughts on the show? Let us know at frienddiagrampod at gmail.com and we might read your email on a future episode. If you can, please take a moment to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice. And we'll see you back here, same place, next week. Bye for now.